in order for our apologies to be seen as sincere as they really are, the person needs to know that we don't apologize at the drop of a hat or when we shouldn't, but that it really is something that we say for when it's heartfelt. Hello and welcome to the BBXX podcast. Let's get intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. Dr. Jennifer Thomas is a best-selling author, TEDx speaker, leadership consultant, and psychologist who helps people know what to say in any situation, including some of the most complicated situations of them all when giving an apology. She's co-authored the book, When Sorry Isn't Enough, with Gary Chapman, the author of the best-selling book and the world-famous concept of the five love languages. Now, as I imagine, many of you are familiar with the five love languages, and if you're not, I would thoroughly encourage you to look them up. The impact that these have had on people's relationships has been groundbreaking in helping people realize the ways that each of us give or recognize love and how sometimes with a partner, we both believe we are expressing love, but the other person might not be able to recognize it because it's not being expressed in the language that they are familiar with. So. This same concept goes for apologies. And whether or not we're willing to admit it, apologies, one, are really difficult, and two, are extremely important. However, as it turns out, we also speak different languages when we apologize. Some of us think apologies are necessary in other circumstances when another person doesn't. And again, some of us don't recognize when somebody might feel they have given an apology, the other person might be fully unaware because of these key underlying communicational differences that we have come to know and therefore use with other people. So even if you're somebody who already thinks they know how to give a stellar apology, Once again, as it turns out with the love languages, it's much less important what your own language is and far more important to know and to use 
what your partner's language is. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to get into the languages of apology, or as the title of your book co-authored with Gary Chapman says, when sorry isn't enough. So I'd love to start there by having you tell us, when is sorry not enough? Why is sorry sometimes not enough? And to really give our listeners a bit of the background and the context as to the importance of this topic, what is the power of a good apology and what role can that play in building a healthy relationship? All right. So we could spend all day talking about this. Um, So what we know is that it's inevitable as we go through life that we're going to offend people, whether it's at work or at home or on Zoom calls, we're going to put our foot in our mouth sometimes. And when that happens, it creates a barrier between us and the other person. And what apologies do is they take away that barrier and they prevent it from growing over time into a whole wall created by these unspoken and undealt with offenses. And so as a clinical psychologist, I've been interested in how I could help my clients to be able to restore relationships where maybe things have been broken off, people have been offended by Others, sometimes even it's tragic to me, family members may not have been speaking for years or even decades. And as I saw that, I thought, what can I do to help these people be able to restore the relationship and have a productive and working relationship again, especially in the case of work teams, which is the direction that my most recent work is going. And so one thing that I noticed was that when you talk about apologies, people are looking for, well, what's the ideal apology? What's the best apology I can give? And what I want to do today is to turn that kind of thinking on its head. Because what I want to suggest to you, Sasha, and to your listeners, is that the best apology depends on whatever the script was from your childhood that your parents or your teachers expected you to say. And so I'm challenging people to think about, well, what do you really need to hear? And if you aren't receiving that from people, how can you ask for it? I love the parallels to the the love languages, the five love languages, which I think a lot of people these days are familiar with. It's become kind of common. And so many people, I think, have seen their relationships transformed by knowing and understanding these love languages. And it's just incredible to see the similarities. And I think that these languages of apology have the same potential impact. And again, the importance, right, of it being more about the other person than yourself. And I think that's something perhaps difficult to remember. People identify their own love languages and try to get somebody else perhaps to recognize them or to conform to them. But really in the end, it's about what the other person's language is and making sure you're the one 
who is switching to that frequency so you can get across to them. So how can we harness that sometimes difficult fact to digest and look at it from a positive angle? So my co-author is Gary Chapman, who wrote The Five Love Languages, and he got really interested in this idea that I brought to him in suggesting that, hey, I think people really have different things that they want to hear and apologies. And so he could see the parallels with the five love languages. And we agreed to do some research together to find out, okay, well, how many different things are people looking for in apologies? And so we surveyed hundreds of people. And what we came up with are these five different things that people either want to hear, or in the case of making amends, it might be something they want to see you do as a way of making it up to them. And I promise we weren't looking for five, although we know Dr. Chapman likes that number. That was really just a coincidence. But those five have held up now over the 15 years that he and I have been working together. And they're very useful. And as we talk with people about what are the obstacles in your relationship? Where are you stuck? And very often people will come to me and say, Jen, I've tried everything in this relationship and nothing is working. I can't seem to get beyond this conflict that I have. And if they're to blame, maybe they say I've tried every way I know of to apologize and make it up to them. And our hope is that after people hear our message or read when sorry isn't enough, that they'll say, oh, Maybe I was just repeating my apology language over and over. Now I want to circle back and find out what their primary apology language is and see if by speaking that, I can show them how sincere I really am. And just something that I think is so impactful with regards to these apology languages is as you kind of touched on earlier, Yes, this is huge in romantic relationships, but this transcends through all kinds of relationships. You touched on the workplace, and I mean, I would argue to say in family dynamics, this has to be one of the toughest and most important things, and perhaps the place in which it can even become more confusing, right? Because if we're from the same family, if we've gone through the same experiences, well, then we assume we speak the same language. And you could be exactly right that with our family of origin, we have a head start on resolving conflicts because we probably do speak the same language. The challenge is with our partner's families, and they may have different customs, and they may speak different languages when it comes to setting things right with them. And even that, though, sometimes there's more room for confusion when we do assume we speak the same language, because I think perhaps in this case with family, yes, but at the same time for other things or other communication styles, when we assume the other person speaking the same language, for example, these studies with business, there are studies that show when countries who speak the same language are doing business together, but for example, it's Australia with the United States or the UK with the United States, it's there in those cases where there's more risk for miscommunication because it's when we assume there's the most similarity that we end up misconstruing things rather than when we're aware and speaking to somebody from 
another culture and who has a different native language, there we're more aware, prepared. We take extra steps to kind of circumnavigate the potential miscommunications, et cetera. So you never know, but let's have you tell our listeners a bit about these different languages of apology and perhaps people can start to identify their own and ways to bring this up in conversations with other people, be it in the workplace with a family member or with a romantic partner and perhaps even some kind of examples or additional context for each of them would be helpful. So our five apology languages lay out, they can be steps. That is, you can use all five of them if you have the time or the inclination. Also, if you're apologizing to a group of people or apologizing to the public, like in a public relations situation, we do recommend that you use all five in order to have the greatest chance of saying something that's going to show your sincerity to the listener. And one way that is helpful to remember these is to think of past, present, and future. So I'll point those out as we go through the five. The first two are looking towards the past and talking about the offense and what created the conflict and how you feel about that. So the first one is expressing regret or saying, I'm sorry. And this one is talking about you understand the emotional cost of what you've done. I think of it as being about your heart more than your head. And so you're connecting with the other person on a heart level and saying, specifically, I'm so sorry for the frustration I caused or the disappointment or the inconvenience and naming the emotions that you caused in them when you let them down in some way. And then the second one is accepting responsibility. And that is saying to the other person, I was wrong. So here we've moved from the heart up to the head. And if this were a court of law, basically I'm now pleading guilty. And I'm saying, I'm not going to argue with you. No ifs, ands, or buts, no qualifiers. I messed up. I was wrong. I should not have done that. And so with both of these, we're looking back at what we did and we're using words to talk about that mistake and specifically how it impacted the other person. And as we look at them, some people are going to say, well, you know, these are just words. Are these empty words? Are they hollow words? I need to see a little action. And so our third apology language is for that person. We're turning now to the present and we're going to make restitution or make amends to them. So we're asking, what can I do to make it right? Or how can I make this up to you? And if we do this properly, the person is going to feel like we've made them whole again, that whatever time we cost them or money we wasted, that after we've made amends, they are no longer at a deficit that we created. And to some people, this is a really essential part of showing how sincere you are in your apology. And then our fourth and fifth apology languages turn towards the future. So the fourth one, we call it planned change. And this is where you're going to lay out specific steps to prevent a reoccurrence going forward. So you'll let the person know, you know, I regret what I did and whatever else you want to say from the earlier apology languages. But to them, 
you're not finished until you say, look, I'm putting these protections into place so that in the future, I won't be letting you down in the same way I have here and possibly that I've, I've done in the past as well. So I really want to fix this. And here is my specific plan to fix it so that it can't happen again. And then our fifth apology language is actually a question. It's the request for forgiveness. Either will you please forgive me? Or it could be a statement like, I don't want to put you on the spot now. I don't want to rush you, but I hope that someday you can find it in your heart to forgive me. And so we're basically saying, thinking about the future again and saying, I hope that I can be a part of your future. I hope you won't write me off or write off our relationship, but I hope that I can regain your trust, show you my sincerity, and that we can be together going forward. And this last one, it has some real challenges with us. It's scary for some of us to ask, will you please forgive me? Because we're kind of putting ourselves in their hands. We're in a way humbling ourselves and it can be scary because they might say no. And so you're kind of laying yourself out there at their mercy. But at the same time, we found that it's really an important step for some people, not the majority of people, but in our survey, three to 5% of people felt that this was the most important of our five apology languages. And I'll say, Sasha, for myself, this wasn't part of my script growing up. And so I really wouldn't have thought to end my apology with this question about, will you forgive me? But I realized that's a mistake or I was being short-sighted in that because for someone, if this is their primary apology language and I stop short of that, they may actually feel like I'm holding out on them in some way. And we would be really missing it with each other because I don't mean to be holding out on them. It's just not part of my usual apology script. And so in writing, When Sorry Isn't Enough with Gary Chapman, I've worked in my own life to be mindful of each of these apology languages, and I'm practicing using them in my day-to-day life, and I've found them all to be helpful. I think that last part you mentioned, how it wasn't necessarily part of your script growing up. Similarly, it wasn't part of my script, but there's something seemingly powerful about extending that vulnerable ask or offer to somebody and saying, can you forgive me? And putting it in their hands. And a lot of psychology talks about when people have the option or when you leave the choice up to them, they're more committed to it. They interpret the situation completely differently. And I can't help but think that when they are then making that choice and voicing it, it would inevitably avoid certain opportunities to come back to that same thing, to circle around, to dig it back up, or to hold on to certain resentment that might be tempting to linger. And so going back to that first earlier mention of resentment, and I think it's a really powerful and sometimes undetected emotion that can be quite detrimental and the Gottman Institute's incredible. They talk about a lot of different things. They talk about kind of negative sentiment override, which I think can kind of tie into this idea of resentment. And 
thinking about when apologies are necessary and different kinds of apologies. And frankly, I mean, obviously, it's easy to kind of off the top of your head think, well, not everything would have the same apology. Certain offenses will be more severe than others and would call for different apologies. But something that came up that I hadn't quite thought about is you guys referenced this the need for different apologies if something is severe or repeated. And that really stuck with me. For example, something that could be seemingly trivial if a couple has a date night every week and somebody's late one night, one week, even two, it's not a big deal. Maybe it's really late. Maybe it's only a few minutes. But when that all of a sudden becomes the norm and is this pattern and is this context of somebody always waiting and the importance of other things taking precedent over the relationship, all of a sudden you're not looking at being late for a date. That's not the issue. You are staring into this huge metaphor of what is valued in the relationship, who is valued more than the other person. It just becomes something totally different. And that was really interesting for me because I truly hadn't really considered that. And so I would love to have you speak a bit more in depth, I guess, to just the need for dynamic apologies and to adapt to different situations, different contexts, and different circumstances. Yeah, so that's really important to understand, like, we might not need to use all five apology languages for the smallest offenses. In fact, that would be overkill. But to realize, well, sometimes I do want to hear more than just my reflexive thing to say is I'm sorry. And I think not to stereotype, but for a lot of women, that is a reflexive thing and we actually do it too much. And so we have a section in the book where we talk about the problem of over apologizing. And I was listening to one of your recent episodes and I loved that you all talked about like, don't apologize for being human and don't apologize for feelings you have in the moment. So I want to thank you for shining a light on that because in order for our apologies to be seen as sincere as they really are, the person needs to know that we don't apologize at the drop of a hat or when we shouldn't, but that it really is something that we say for when it's heartfelt. And another challenge I give people is to make sure your apology will stand on its own. And what do I mean by that? I mean, a lot of times we want the other person to meet us halfway and say, oh, well, thanks for that apology, but I also have been neglecting you or doing some other thing. But here's the challenge. I want people to offer apologies that they'll be glad they offered, even if the other person doesn't meet you halfway. And we actually discourage people from apologizing if that's not the case or apologizing to keep what we call peace at any price. That's no good. That's not a sincere apology. And even if someone is calling for an apology from you and you don't think you've done anything wrong, 
then what we say is you're actually not in a position to apologize because it would be a, a terrible non-apology that you'd give anyway. It'd be one of these to the extent that you're offended or if I upset you, well, if and but don't belong in real apologies. And so what we say is in those cases, you're having a conversation rather than offering an apology and that it's important to continue that conversation and to say, Things along the lines of Gottman and restating. So this is what you're saying happened and how it was very upsetting. Do I have that right? And then you could say, you know, I see it somewhat differently. May I tell you how I saw it? And then the conversation can continue. So this graphic, it says it has these two columns. It says, if you want to say on the left, then it says, thank you. Don't say sorry. And so... For example, don't say, sorry, I'm always late. If you want to say, thank you for your patience. If you want to say, thank you for understanding me, don't say, sorry, I'm not making a lot of sense. If you want to say, thank you for spending time with me, don't say, sorry, I'm a drag. Thank you for listening versus sorry for rambling. And it's just a really great friendly reminder that I think many of us need to hear. If you want to say thank you, don't say I'm sorry. And at the same time, the most incredible part about this is that the person on the receiving end feels so much better when they are being thanked than when they're being apologized to. When somebody says thank you so much for taking the time for listening to me, for appreciating me, I feel great. That is totally different than having a friend say, sorry, I'm a drag, blah, 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 whatever it is. You're empowering them and you're giving them that gesture and that gratitude. And that's so much more powerful than kind of stepping on your own feet and not giving credit to yourself nor credit to your friend. True. And I think there are a couple of factors going on here. One is that an apology pulls for reassurance. So there's work to be done, even at the same time that you're receiving an apology. It doesn't let you kind of move on. There's reassurance that needs to be offered. Whereas a thank you is nice and clean. I can accept that and we're both feeling good. I don't have to make you feel better. Yeah. So make your friend feel good and don't ask even more of them and make them reassure you that you're not a drag. I love it. I love it. Exactly. And work in the compliment that's part of the thank you. I would much rather get that. And I actually have an example from my own marriage where I observed this happening. So my husband's name is JT and he's been through two or three pretty significant jobs transitions in our course of our 27-year marriage. And I remember one of the times was especially difficult because he had lost his job and we were looking at potentially having to move to another state for him to get another job. And we had young, our three young kids and it was just really stressful and difficult. And I was trying my best to support him in not bellyache about how threatened I felt by the idea of having to pack up and and move out of state. And I was trying to just really support him through it. And I remember one morning he said, Jen, I want to apologize for how hard it is that I've been laid off. I really regret that my situation is causing all the stress for you and our whole family. 
And when he stopped, I said, I really, I love an apology. I really, I'm not one to decline an apology, but I'm actually going to decline that one because it's not your fault that you got laid off. And I appreciate that you want to kind of care for me and extend some words to me and support me around this. But what I would find more supportive, if I could tell you honestly, is a thank you for my attitude. And we shortened it up to, I'd like gratitude for my attitude. And I said, you know, if you can just say it would be easy for you to complain and you haven't and you're really digging in. I feel like you're really being my partner in this and thank you. That would really feel good to me. And so we stuck with that. And now we just keep that shorthand about the gratitude for the attitude. I love gotta hand out that gratitude (laughs) for the attitude. That's lovely. It brings up another point, Sasha, that it can be a little hard to ask for what you want. But if you can verbalize it, is it even okay to say, I could use a compliment right now. I am sort of struggling. So an atta girl or an atta boy would mean a lot. And I'm going to segue from that into apologies. And there's a real power once you know your primary apology language where you can ask for apologies that are going to be more meaningful to you. Just like, as we said, when you know your love language, you can ask for the thing that's really going to carry the most weight for you. But we have to be willing to assert ourselves and to ask for that and to trust that the other person wants to make our connection as strong as possible. Absolutely. And that's exactly what it has the the power to do. And while we're talking about your husband, JT, and kind of personal learning experiences, That's sort of how you came into studying this. If you could tell that story and also any advice for people in how to understand what your own language of apology is so you can communicate that to other people, but for the both of you, what their language is as well. That's true. Yeah. So I was not working in the area of apologies and forgiveness when I had this idea about apology languages come to me. But as a clinical psychologist, I was always looking for one-pagers or principles or things that would help my clients get unstuck. And I'd heard a radio interview with another psychologist who was talking about three steps to a complete apology. And I had gotten out a sticky note and written down those three. And they were, I'm sorry, I was wrong, and here's what I'm going to change going forward. And Because I wrote those down, they stuck in my mind. And one night, this was many years ago, JT and I were having sort of a rough end of the week evening, trying to get dinner on the table. And we were both tired and I had made a mistake, which is not actually that uncommon. He's more careful than I am. And what it was about isn't really the important thing, but just to know. And it generally never is, right? No, it's the tiniest little things, right? But it carried more weight because he wants me to be careful. I mean, a lot of days I was off with our children at the swimming pool and other places, and I'm very social. And so he would worry, like, you need to be careful. You need to focus. You don't need to be talking to a friend and have one of our children drown or something like that. And so this little incident that happened at home wasn't 
anything about his fears for our children and their well-being. But when I made this mistake in the kitchen, I think it carried more weight because of his other fears. And as we talked about, it was a repeated thing of him trying to get me to be more um, careful. And so I said right away, as I reflexively would, oh, I'm sorry. And I could tell that it wasn't cutting mustard with him. And so after a while, I asked him, well, what's wrong? And he said, well, I just wish you would apologize. And I want to invite your listeners to stop and think, have you ever had that happen where you tried to apologize, but it was like totally ignored? And so the problem is then you have two people who are offended. He was upset. And then I'm upset because he ignored my sorry. But that particular night, instead of getting frustrated back, I just got curious. And I said, it sounded like you were listening for something I didn't say. What were you listening for? And he said, well, I wanted you to say you were wrong. And I said, oh, okay, well, to me, that's like a synonym with I'm sorry. So that's true, too. And I will say I was wrong. And it made all the difference for him. And I kind of laughed and I thought, gosh, I wish this guy had come with an instruction manual. And I for sure don't want to forget that he has different like magic words than I do. And because I had that sticky note and I could see exactly where this fit in, it stuck in my mind and I realized, oh, this is kind of like the five love languages where you have something that you're waiting for and that carries the most weight for you, but they may not realize it. They may kind of check it off and move on without hitting what your need is. And so because I knew Gary Chapman a little bit through networking and we live in the same area, it wasn't too big of a leap to go and, and run this idea by him. And we developed what we now call the two essentials for healthy relationships. And those are using apology languages to help handle the offenses that come up and then using the love languages to keep your love tank full. And we do feel that the two really do go hand in hand. And then to your question, how can you know what someone wants to hear in an apology? We say there are a couple of questions that you can just ask those, maybe people that you talk to every day, you would want to ask this of. You can say, when you hear a really good apology, what makes it good? Or when you hear an apology that totally stinks, what's missing? And chances are that they're going to say something that will reveal what their primary apology language is. And then if you're more the um, type of person who likes to take online profiles, you can also go and we have a free apology language assessment that's available on my website if people want to take it. Thank you for sharing that story. You alluded to kind of some of these best practices and not so great practices. And so I would love to get into that a bit more. We can start with kind of the best practices or some of the tactics. We love sharing actionable advice. And so, yeah, just some of the best practices that people can do in order to hone their skills in apology and forgiveness. Okay, well, here's the first thing. If you're like me and you tend to reflexively say, I'm sorry, step one is to replace that phrase with the phrase, I apologize. Because that phrase is not an apology language of an, in and of itself, but it's like a vanilla base 
that you can put your apology onto. And I find that it's a universal way of expressing, okay, I'm going to take responsibility for this. I'm not going to minimize it or blame you. So it's a good lead-in to any apology. And then I encourage people to make their apologies face-to-face if they can. And more broadly, I just think that too often we handle our conflict through electronic media, whether it's on social media or by texting or emailing. Unless there needs to be a paper trail, which is one reason for using email, I really think once communication goes from being neutral or positive to having a negative tone, that it's time to stop the exchange and to say, let's table this until we can talk about it face to face. And you can add a compliment there. You can say, you know what, you and our relationship are too important to me for us to argue about this. And then just remember that your tone is probably going to come across more harshly through text, which is, I'm going to use that as as an example, because that's such a common way that I see couples arguing. They'll come into me and when we have marital sessions or individual sessions, and they'll say, look at what he sent me. Look at this long argument we had by text. And my advice would be, you know what, as soon as you knew it was an argument, it was time to hit pause and not argue back that way because first your tone comes across as harsh as they want it to sound. They're reading whatever tone they're in the mood for into it. And then secondly, you can't stop or see when you've flooded the other person if you're just texting. And so it's much better to hash out those things face to face. But I think there's a real discipline or self-discipline in learning to do that. I'll share another story from my family. I'm, I'm trying to instill this in um, my children. And I remember when my daughter had recently gotten her driver's license. And so she's off doing her own shopping and texting me from stores and asking me for things that she wants. And so we're not able to be face-to-face while making decisions as much as we would like. And there were a couple of times where she would start to argue back, like, no, why can't I have that mom? Or why can't I do that mom? And I want her to learn, not only in dealing with me, but with her friends, to say, wait a minute, this isn't going a good direction. And so I would literally text her that reply, like, wait a minute, this isn't going the way I want to. Let's hit pause and I'll talk to you about it when you get home. And my deep hope is that's not just something that happens in our family, but sometime when she's back on the college campus, if she has a roommate conflict, that they don't have that whole argument by text, but that my daughter might say, wait a minute, I don't want to say something that I'll regret, or I don't want to be cross with you. Let's just talk this over lunch in the dining hall. Yeah. And as somebody who... (laughs) Conflict gives me so much anxiety, so I tend to have a need if, I mean, one, to try and avoid it, which is why I love communication so much, when it inevitably might come up to deal with it right away. And so at least kind of a phone call or if, especially with COVID, hopping on a FaceTime to try and resolve things and not have that tension build. But at the same time, recognizing, especially for some people who can't recognize how they feel right away, can't kind of 
associate the labels and the emotions to the physiological feelings they might be having and can't articulate right away as well their position. Some people do need time to walk around the block or sit and think about it and really understand where it comes from. And perhaps that's that might involve realizing it's not even that big of a deal to begin with, or it's actually about something else, or being able to articulate a much more simple apology or phrase rather than talking in circles or letting emotions get in the way or or looking at something two-dimensionally and not recognizing what it's actually about. Yeah, that's a good point. And another thing that I've become concerned about is seeing how people cut others off and block them and do things that maybe overkill. I don't think we have to stay friends with everyone for our whole life, but I do place a real value on relationships and on shared history with people and on being sensitive to the feelings of others. And so I would like to say a word about that. If you feel like there's someone you don't want to be friends with anymore, first I would ask, well, how much history do you have with them? And and would it be worth trying to clear the air and see if you can find a way through it? Because chances are that one or both of you might actually grow into a better person through working it out and not just walking away. So within that, I do prioritize family relationships. I, I have a consulting role that I play with some families where they're trying to get back to where they're speaking again if they haven't been. So I think family is really primary and family includes marriage, especially where there are children involved. I will bend over backwards with a couple to help them be able to talk things through and work it out if possible. But with that being said, I I acknowledge that it, it takes two people to get married, but only one person to end it. And I know if you're that one person who's been left, that there can be a lot of guilt and sadness about that. And so I want to speak to that listener and say, I understand not every marriage can be saved because it does take two. And then I'm thinking more of friendship situations or dating situations. And it does trouble me when people go right from she's bugging me or I don't like her anymore to so, so I've blocked her. Ghosting troubles me because I think it's, it can be really insensitive if the person doesn't know that you ghosted them and then they're wasting their time trying to reach out or find you or see if you changed your number or whatever. And this has actually happened to me before and it really didn't feel good. And so I think there's a maturity that's involved in either talking things out openly or at the least maybe trying to grow apart graciously and peacefully like maybe you don't initiate as much but growing apart gracefully I think has a lot to be said for it as opposed to cutting it off with no contact unless of course the disclaimer is if you're in some danger yeah this topic of ghosting I think particularly in today's digital context and culture, a a huge one. And I think one that is troubling or relevant to a lot of people, regardless of what side of things it's on. And I'm actually, I'm doing a life coach certification course right now. And this came up 
just yesterday in our class and people talking about what the reasoning was for it. Is it a lack of communication skills? Is it a lack of awareness on the person ghosting? A lack of awareness on attempted boundaries or signs that were maybe given on the other side and that they chose not to read into versus kind of laziness and and trying to kind of, obviously it's different in different cases, but I think there's definitely a language and an etiquette that perhaps isn't addressed frequently enough. And also realizing that on the side of the person that chooses to disappear, for example, that might stick around and you might later feel bad about that. That might end up becoming a bit of a ghost for you. And even if it doesn't, if it's something that you totally forget about, it's important to acknowledge that for the other person, that can become a ghost and that in their future interactions, that fear will still be present. That confusion that kind of lack of understanding, that will still carry on with them. And so really acknowledging perhaps the unfairness. And again, there are different situations. It depends for how long and what the context was and what signals were given. But to really think about before kind of making that choice or defaulting how that might affect the other person. You mentioned text arguing. And next to it, I have no. For anybody who's listening, there is no right situation to have a text argument. It's not a thing. What happens is the other person or you yourself are reading it in the voice in your head and the context you are putting onto it and projecting onto it. And you have no way of knowing what the other person is thinking, feeling, trying to communicate what their intentions are. And again, just today, somebody said something and it, it stuck with me and it was, we judge other people based on their actions and kind of the result or the face value or the intentions we project onto them. And we judge ourselves by our intentions and the intentions we know we have versus other people just on the surface level and the result or the consequences or the actions. Or again, far worse, the misinformed projected intentions that we decide for them. Regardless of if you are Gen Z or what generation you are, please try to resort to live time communication for sensitive and important things, not to mention it's much more efficient and in the end will be less stress. To wrap up some of these kinds of best practices, you also talked about the Oreo or sandwich methodology and kind of the painting a picture or uh, specifically told a story of your husband wanting to be introduced at a party and some of those tactics and again, more practical pieces of advice. would love to have you just touch on a few of those. So yeah, the Oreo or sandwich method is if you need to say something difficult to someone, that it's best if you can sandwich it between two positives. The positives can be kind of broadly understood. It could be a compliment, but it also could be something about your commitment to them. So an example might be if I was saying to a coworker, 
the hard message I need to share is that I'm feeling like they don't appreciate my gifts and they overlook my contributions. But I don't want to just say that and then walk out of the room. I mean, it'd be kind of awkward. So I could start off with a compliment, suppose this is to a manager of mine. Like usually I feel like you listen to my contributions and that's something I've really valued about you and working for this company. And then, but is there was this crunchy interaction we had the other day on Zoom where I felt that my ideas were dismissed and therefore I personally felt dismissed. And I don't know, you know, if you were having an off day or if you're not feeling well, but I did want to talk it over rather than just pushing it down because, and then here's where you end with a positive about your commitment, because I'm really committed to being a productive part of this team and being here for the long term. And so I don't want to allow hurt feelings to um, remain in the forefront of my mind. I felt like it was something that I could trust you with and that we can work through. I love analogies and word pictures. And really, it goes along with the thing we touched on earlier of the importance of restating the other one's position. So it's more powerful to say, so is it like this for you? And to bring in a word picture than it is to say, so what you're saying is, and that can feel really rote and sort of like you're sitting in the teacher and you're being required to do it. Whereas if you have a really well-constructed analogy that you can come up with for what it might be feeling like for them, I've seen people just really light up with excitement and relief that, oh, you really get it. I know you get it because you came up with that example basically. Yeah, the power of metaphor. Absolutely. To make somebody connect with their feelings through that image that you can give them to say, I hear you. I get this. I see it. An example I have, which is a bit off piste, but in my coaching course that I'm doing just today, we were doing these kind of mock coaching sessions and there was somebody doing one with a hypothetical client in front of the whole class. And over Zoom, of course. And um, they were describing their struggle. And we have this expression that is used frequently as an example of a metaphor. And, and they tied it in geniusly to their coaching session. And this person was describing what they wanted to do, what they were struggling with, and wanting to start this business, wasn't far along enough, and blah, 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 and getting started. And the person just said, so what I'm hearing is that you want to give birth to a fully grown child. And the person was just like, yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. It's just the absurdity of it too. And I don't think this would necessarily work effectively in the context of conflict, but the absurdity of it and just in helping somebody realize and reiterate back to them basically exactly what they're saying, but in an image and especially involving humor and drawing attention to the absurdity and the impossibility of what they are frustratingly talking about not being able to do was extremely effective in this case. Again, I'm not sure about the humor in the conflict situation, but these things, metaphor, can be extremely powerful and using sports or nature 
all kinds of things can be effective. Yeah, and as you were sharing that, I remembered one that I've used in a couple of different contexts recently that might be practical for someone out there. When someone is doing something repeatedly or getting frustrated, maybe being let down repeatedly, I've been saying, well, it's kind of like when Charlie Brown um, is trying to kick the football and Lucy says she'll hold it if he'll run at it again. <laughs> but then she always pulls it away and he winds up on his back or doing backflip and kind of gets a wind knocked out of himself. And so that can be a really a helpful way to validate someone who has been repeatedly frustrated or disappointed. Um, saying you feel like Charlie Brown kind of getting flipped on his back and you don't really want to make a run at it anymore. And I was using that recently. I was talking to someone who is trying to get over some codependency that keeps her stuck in bad relationships. And yet she's really committed to this person she's been dating who has some addiction and may not really be in a place to love her well right now because his first love is the thing he's addicted to. But we talked about how she wants to be Charlie Brown and wants to run and and kick that ball again and give him one more chance. And that there's a potential cost for her of that. But I also let her know that it's her right to do that and that I'll be there to help her learn from it as she sees the pattern over time and as she makes her own decisions about what to do with that relationship. Yeah. So now that we've discussed some of these best practices, <laughs> let's talk about some of the <laughs> suboptimal practices. And I must say that when I heard you mention some of these in your TED Talk, I burst into laughter. And I'm not sure if it's just because of the fact that I'm a communication nerd when I was reading The Culture Map when I was reading Deborah Tannen's work recently, and for example, with this your TED Talk, I am constantly laughing out loud at all of this stuff. So learning about communication isn't just educational. For me, I find it highly entertaining because you relate it back to yourself so much and these stories and these case studies, I find them hilarious. And so I don't know if it's just me being a total communication nerd, but We'll kind of pass it over to you to share some of these things that people probably shouldn't use. And I'm sure everybody's thinking, well, obviously I don't use these. But then you hear them and they make their way around. These are things that we hear and that some people really do think pass for an apology or asking forgiveness, but really need to be kind of set aside, put on the bench. Yes. Well, I'll give you a little behind the scenes look at my preparation for my TEDx talk. So they want those talks to be completely written out and memorized because they don't want you to go over on time and they don't want you to say something that they don't want to have, you know, shared because um, they can't bleep you out or whatever. So as a professional speaker, I never write out my whole talk. I, I just put a few points on a note card and I memorize them and I go with that because I don't want it to feel scripted. But here I was required to produce this script for a 15 minute talk. And as I was working on it, I was talking to a good friend who was telling me that her problem with apologies is that her parents 
don't give very good ones, but they do offend her at times. And so she's stuck wanting to ask for something more. She's like the person who gets a tiny crumb of an apology and she's left thinking, and give me something more here. But she says it always backfires when she asks for something else because they'll come back at her with these phrases that I've come to call stink bombs. And I rattled off a number of them. But the sad but funny thing is, was that they all came from this one person and she's heard them all from her father. And so it's things like, why can't you just move on? It's time to move on. Why can't you just drop it? Let's let the past stay in the past. She knew them all so well because she had heard them and been disappointed by them so many times. I'm afraid sometimes we think you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but a hope that Gary Chapman and I have with our writing is that people who have never been very good apologizers will get some practical words and phrases that they can use to be able to give those better apologies. And our hope is that in doing that, some people who have had really broken relationships will be able to get those relationships back on track and to, again, enjoy humor and all the fun that can come with really getting along with people and getting those offenses out of the way. Yeah, and in the context of the TED Talk, you had kind of discussed the stink bombs within the circumstances of the workplace, or for example, in politics, which kind of made them even funnier. I would tell her, I'm so sorry for what you know, you've know you gone through. But I think these can come up specifically in those contexts where people don't want to look bad by actually admitting fault in the context of politics or public figures or in the workplace when there isn't yet a culture of healthy communication and, and conflict resolution. Right. And there's so much competition at work. We want to appear to be the strong one on the team and the one who always delivers. And so it doesn't argue for accepting responsibility. But what we say is if you think about the people who you respect the most, chances are that those are people who will apologize when they know they've made a mistake and that we don't respect them less. In fact, we respect them more for it. Absolutely. Because it's not easy. And I think all of us know it requires a great level of vulnerability and thought and risk-taking, right? Because you also don't know how the other person will react, but that's part of what makes the gesture powerful to begin with. In terms of these suboptimal practices, also some of the words that come up were excuses or kind of dismissing the like accident versus intention and then the words well and but, if you could speak to some of those. Yeah, I find well is a really invalidating word. If you're sharing, like, think of my friend who's asking her dad for a better apology. If he says well and then lobs a stink bomb at her, he's saying you and your feelings don't matter as much as me kind of saving face or not having to receive this blame. 
And then but is very invalidating. And we know in the context of an apology that it erases the first part of the apology that you offered. And now you're letting the person know what you really think, which is is unfortunate. It's better if we can stop before the word but and just put a period and let our acceptance of responsibility and whatever blame is there stand. And here's a word picture. I think blame is a hot potato. And if you remember the hot potato game from preschool, it's about passing it around. Nobody wants to hold the hot potato. And that's what I see happening when there's responsibility that we don't want to take on the full blame. We might be willing to share blame, but I'd like to encourage people to stop and think about, are you willing to accept legitimate blame or responsibility? Or is that your kryptonite? Is it something that makes you really nervous? And if so, that might be a growth opportunity for you. Absolutely. Being able to sit with difficult things is one of the requirements for building a long lasting relationship. It's true. And it's an important part of adulting. Absolutely. As we get ready to wrap up, I wanted to kind of circle back to some of the work of the people we discussed earlier in the reference to cross-cultural communication. As our gal, Deborah Tannen says, every communication, every interaction is a cross-cultural communication. And we talked about in the beginning the influence of family and how we all carry this context and this model, you talk about how this all becomes the wallpaper to our lives. And I, again, love that metaphor and we'll have you touch on that a bit. So could you tell us a bit about not only on an individual level and these influences and the models we develop, but any patterns that you guys have found within culture age, gender. And I know that this is some of the upcoming work and the book that you're currently dedicating your time to. So we'll perhaps have to do a version 2.0 of this interview, but have you touch on it a bit? Yeah. So I became curious about for both the five love languages and our five apology languages, well, which of these are the most popular? What do people really want to hear? And does it vary by gender or age group or culture? And my PhD is in both clinical psychology and community psychology. And the community piece really has fostered in me an interest in what are our community groups and what kind of cross-cultural understandings do we need to have in order to get along with other groups. So I, I was able to obtain the data from hundreds of thousands of people who've taken these profiles online. And um, speaking specifically to apology language preferences, one of the things that surprised me was how few differences I found, like a, across cultures by age group, um, men and women in general, the differences seem to be largely individual. One exception would be with accepting responsibility or saying I was wrong. That was less crucial in Asian cultures 
I found. And that's, I think, as we might expect, because in those cultures, there's an appreciation for letting other people save face. And you wouldn't really go and kind of point your finger and hand that hot potato of blame to a person in that culture. They're trained more to protect others. And I've learned somewhat with the romance languages, like French, maybe, and then Spanish. We had an exchange student from Spain one year, and she was teaching me that you don't say, like, I dropped my glasses in that language. As you and many of your listeners may know, you say, my glasses fell from my face. So there's less of a focus on that accepting responsibility, even as reflected in the language, and perhaps more of a graciousness that comes with that. One thing that I found interesting was that our first two apology languages were far and away the most popular of the five. So about 35% of people most want to hear the phrase, I'm sorry, and another 35 to 40% of people most want to hear the phrase, I was wrong. So if you take those two together, it adds up to 75% of people are going to hopefully be pretty satisfied if you say those two things in your apology. And then I would underscore and stop before you add the words, but, if, or well, well in the sense of invalidating them and their feelings like, well, that doesn't really matter, or, well, let's move on. But you can give a really strong apology that will show your sincerity if you take care to express regret and accept responsibility if you do both of those. Just to quickly touch on that part about the the language difference and specifically referencing Spanish, this is something I don't remember when I kind of learned about this through the context of linguistics and the kind of subconscious influence that has on us. But exactly what you were saying, if somebody is carrying a plate of food to the dinner table or something and it gets dropped, you'd say, se le cayó el plato. And so it's just, well, the plate fell from him or her. No one's fault here. The plate fell from him or her. Versus in English, it would be she or he dropped the plate. And it implies this blame. And it's just particularly comical for me because I've had so many instances where I'm hanging out with my friends from Latin America in Latin America where I lived for for two years in Chile. And the number of times somebody has dropped something and it is no big deal and nobody blinks an eye and they keep talking and just somebody helps or it is just not even a thing. And I have noted on so many occasions and told people, you guys don't understand in my house, this would be a big deal or the way I grew up and people freak out about these small things. And it's, I just love how it's this perfect example and how the language itself might lend itself to that. I think also just the chill and laid back mentality and attitude in general, but there's definitely something there and and language becomes this powerful either tool in some cases where it gives us the ability to talk about things or in other cases doesn't give us the inability to just throw that hot potato on somebody, imply the blame. And even if we think, oh, well, we're not actually blaming them, but the language in itself is implicating that. And that just, yeah, brings it back to this wallpaper of our lives 
that you've referenced. And the wallpaper is there. But if you live there, if it's in your home, you don't notice it. You don't notice it. You're not phased by it. That does not mean it doesn't affect you. It doesn't mean that you are not influenced by it. It doesn't mean that subconsciously it could be creating some stress or joy, but it's registering on a subconscious level. And now I'm just comically thinking of the yellow wallpaper, the famous story where the wallpaper literally drove the woman to insanity. But there's something to that. And we might think these things don't influence us because we don't notice them. But those are two very different things. Yep. And we don't notice how often we do it. But now having invested the time in our conversation, your listeners are going to notice more often that they are apologizing or they're hearing apologies and and they'll be able to stop and think, oh, was that really needed? Or was that one of those like, excuse me, or I'm sorry that happened to you, but it's not really an apology, or I'm sorry I bumped into you. And a piece that I hope people will think about when they hear an apology is, okay, was that what the recipient needed to hear? Or did they need to hear something in a different language? Absolutely. And and now knowing that you can ask them and bring up this topic and find ways to, to communicate in a better way for each one of you in a way that gets the message heard, that makes people feel heard and kind of creates that connection rather than what can easily become a disconnection. And kind of going off of how people will probably begin to notice this, just another metaphor. I really like going on walks in the dark. Sometimes we'll go at night to clear my head and I generally don't use a light, but it is quite dark where I live. A lot of trees, big trees, and if there isn't a moon, it, it is quite dark. And so I recently took a light for the first time, and the number of eyes that were gazing out from the trees at me the entire time, and there are just so many deer in this area, I don't know what else they might have been, but mostly deer, but everywhere around me, just eyes everywhere. And I thought, well, it can't be that you weren't here before. I'm sure you were. I just didn't know. I hadn't turned on the light and you don't notice what you're not looking for. And again, these things and people might begin to pick up on them and it doesn't mean that they weren't there, but the power of looking for something gives you the ability to notice it and then to take it in and sit with it and kind of enact on it is hugely powerful and can impact all of our relationships as a result. And so I thank you so much for all of this wonderful knowledge and actionable advice and the context you've given us and to reference something that you spoke to at the end of your TED Talk, the fact that the future only has meaning as it relates to the past. And so you know, what we do at BBXX and what you and your work has also done is help people realize these subconscious influences or these things that are all around us, but perhaps we're not shining the light on to notice, or perhaps we think we notice, but we don't actually realize how much they subconsciously influence us. And being able to take this 
new view, this new perspective, and this new curiosity to more intentionally shape our future by understanding our past. Right. Exactly. It's so important. And I just hope as people listen that they may be inspired in some way to um, take a relationship and help do some repair work if needed and to take that relationship to the next level. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to your next book. Thank you. I enjoyed it, Sasha. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime. If you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism, we'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the Book Club newsletter, where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.